0: Our reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1140, 1140. Philippians 3, starting at verse 17. (coughs) Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will take on and be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice! wonderful promises that you've given to us and we just ask that your blessing will be upon Pastor Uri as he speaks this morning as he brings the message that you have put on his heart. We thank you for all that you have done for us and for the provision of of good leaders who can bring us your truths in our good time in their in your good time. Thank you, Father. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well good morning it's
1: nice to have a little bit of uh, cooler weather these last couple of days. we can enjoy our time in the uh, sitting in this atmosphere, not boiling like we were last Sunday. Well, I wonder, how are you feeling today? At the end of a busy first week back at it, are you excited? Are you energized? Are you anxious? Are you nervous? Are you already kind of tired? Are you not sure how you'll drag yourself through another 10 months of this until next summer? Well, I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, are feeling a little bit of all of those emotions mixed together this morning. For some of us, it's back to the old grind, back to the usual duties and the frantic schedules. And others will face the uncertainty of the new new classes, new teachers, new jobs, new bosses. New roles, new partners in life, new challenges, new countries, new places, new people. Many people take the summer as an opportunity to look back over the past year and reassess, did I succeed or fail? Did I put in too much effort or not enough? Did I just kind of sit around, or did I stretch myself far too thin? Did I spend enough time with the people that I love, and, if not, How do I balance how do I balance that with the pressures that I feel to spend more time on my studies or, or at my work? Do I need some kind of a reset? How do I even go about figuring this stuff out? The questions we ask at this time of year can be overwhelming, but in these verses that we just heard from Philippians, which we started to look at last week, Paul gives us a good foundation from which to work through what this coming year is going to look like for us. Now, even if you've already decided that, even if you feel like you've got a good bead on it, even if you've already committed your time, a regular check-in is helpful. Because you're going to find that pretty soon all those best-laid fall plans, well, they're going to fall, all right. Despite all our good intentions, a lot of us already know that they're going to fall one after another like dominoes. But what we don't know right now is just which one of the dominoes it's going to be that falls first and how and if or what kind of chain reaction that falling falling domino could cause. We'll then have to answer with great urgency the question that we took all summer to leisurely ponder. Of all the good things that I want, what do I absolutely need to keep in my life? Of all the good things that I want, what do I absolutely need to keep in my life? Well, one answer to that question that reflects last week's sermon is the priority that Paul brings out when he hauls out into the open the conflict in the church at Philippi. A conflict within the body of Christ. A conflict between two prominent Christian women deeply committed to building the kingdom. Now, a heavily freighted conflict just like an overburdened schedule, has the power to focus the attention. We're desperate, almost at any cost, to be relieved of our burden. In the case of this personal conflict, the obvious solution would have been for each of these women to just turn away from one another, to avoid each other when it was possible, and to just be nice when it wasn't. But because Paul knew these women, because he knew their mutual commitment to the gospel and the damage that would be done if they unburdened themselves in such a superficial way, he did not leave them that option. No, in verse 2, he charged them, he pleaded with them, in fact, to be of the same Mind. Now, if you're looking at your Pew Bible, remember that that's the better translation of the word agree. Be of the same mind. In other words, as we saw last week, he told them that they needed to share the mind of Christ. And he asked the rest of the church to help them realize that very important charge, that very demanding and very humbling charge. Based on that, to the urgent question, of all the good things that I want, what do I absolutely need? The answer that I think Paul would give is relationship. Relationship. But not necessarily the relationships that we tend to think of right away. Paul specifically makes the priority our relationship to our brother's and sisters in Christ. He prioritizes fellowship within the church. He prescribes a course of treatment to restore the healthy functioning of the body of Christ. This was what prompted him to write in the first place. Now, before any of you start to groan inwardly, Consider that in our passage, Paul gives us an even more fundamental reason why he believes that these relationships are so important. So let's look at verse 1. Looking at verse 1. Now, if you're just looking at it, without actually reading it, that's actually good, because I want to say that it's unfortunate that in our pew Bibles we have a paragraph break and a heading before verse 2. The second half of verse 1 reads, That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends, which sounds like a closing statement. But the original phrase in Greek doesn't just prompt us to reflect on what came before A better way of translating it is what we read last week in the New American Standard Version. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, beloved. Or maybe stand firm thus. The phrase looks forward at least as much as it looks backward. Certainly, he had just described with tears, as he says, the enemies of the cross of Christ and gave his preliminary suggestion and encouragement to follow his example. And he had earlier called those called out those that he branded dogs and mutilators of the flesh. But Paul still had not yet named the conflict which he perceived to be the greatest threat to standing firm in the Lord. This conflict which spurred him to write in the first place. It was this internal strife, this unwillingness to stand together in the Lord that was sapping the Philippians' strength, that was making them wobble, compromising their ability to stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. That's the essential thing. If we don't stand firm, if we deconstruct or deconvert or turn away or apostatize or whatever we want to call it, We will no longer see any point in reading Paul's letter to begin with. Stand firm in the Lord. Well, how were they? How are we to stand firm? The fellowship, the healthy relationships within the body of Christ are the key. And that's just the beginning. In verse 1, Paul had only just gotten started. Stand firm thus. Stand firm in this way. And then in verse 3, Paul commands the leaders and the whole congregation to help these women to be of the same mind. Help them. And why does he do this? Because this is the first, the most basic principle of standing firm in the Lord. To stand firm, the people of God must be of the same mind. They must not be at odds with one another. They must share the mind of Christ. But how do we do that? Well, as we saw last week, Paul commands us in verse 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, this seems like a completely unlikely strategy, but in worshiping together, we not only set an example and an expectation for one another, we are actively participating, we are actively submitting ourselves together before the Lord. We pursue the mind of Christ together in worship. And then again in verse 5, Paul calls us to let your gentleness be evident to all. That is to embody and to consistently demonstrate the gentleness, the great heartedness and selflessness, the epiachis, as we read last week, of Jesus himself. And then he pauses At the center of these commands that are intended to teach us how to stand firm in the Lord, Paul reminds us, the Lord is near. Jesus himself is near. The Lord is at hand. As James puts it elsewhere, Jesus is the judge and he is standing at the door. It's a sobering thought. And it's at this point that Paul switches gears. To stand firm, to describe how to be of the same mind he's been issuing commands in short, efficient phrases without any explanation... He hasn't told us how we are to rejoice. He hasn't expanded on what that epiacus, that gentleness that we were talking about last week, should look like exactly. But now, as he reflects on the person of Jesus himself, as he perceives the nearness of Jesus, as he invites us to do the same, there's a slackening of the pace. A softening of his tone, a reflectiveness. He starts to pile word upon word upon word. If he had kept going at the same rate it would have just been command 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 rejoice in the lord show your gentleness don't be anxious pray think about excellent things practice what you've learned and we could learn these things by rote rejoice in the lord show your gentleness don't be anxious pray think about excellent things practice what you've learned rejoice in the lord show your gentleness don't be anxious pray think about excellent things practice what you've learned isn't that how we often approach the christian life as a list of tasks that we have to complete. But Paul, when he thinks on Jesus, he's always just stopped in his tracks. He can't keep going. He can't just blow past him. Jesus is too lovely, too beautiful, too wise. Too wonderful. Paul encourages us to just just sit and rest a while. Just just come and listen at Jesus' feet. Jesus is near. Jesus is at hand. Paul's not getting sidetracked here. This is his whole point. The peace of God. And the God of peace. It's as if Paul is recalling this story that he heard from his friend Luke. about Jesus' friend Martha and her sister Mary? Now, since Luke wrote it down for us, too, we may as well read it together. It's at the end of Luke 10, starting in verse 38, and since I'll be reading from the King James Version, you can follow along on the screen. And this is the King James Version, capital K, capital J, capital V, uh, the first edition, uh, which I think is so cool. Anyways, let's read together. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about, much serving And came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing. Is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. And we need to especially pay attention to this word that Jesus says to Martha that she is careful. She's careful and troubled about many things. Now, the reason we need to attend to this word is because it's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 4, verse 6. It's also the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, do not worry about your life or about your body, what you will wear. And it's the same word that Jesus uses when he predicts that the disciples will be arrested and flogged and hauled before rulers and authorities, that they are not to worry about what to say. And likewise, in the parable of the sower, when the seed falls among the thorns, Jesus uses the word to describe the cares of the world that choke the seed's growth So that's the negative use of this word. But it's not the only way that the word is used in the New Testament. In other instances, it's used in a positive sense. In 1 Corinthians 12.25, Paul urges the different parts of the body of Christ to have concern for each other. In 2 Corinthians 11.28, when he speaks of the daily pressure of his anxiety for all the churches... Clearly, this is not something that he feels is bad or wrong or even undesirable. And finally, in the very letter that we're studying, he uses the same word in a very positive sense to praise Timothy, that he is one of a kind because he takes a genuine interest in the Philippians' welfare. The point here is that we don't have A single word in modern English that we can easily turn to the positive and to the negative. The reason for this is that the Greek word we can translate as worry or anxiety or care or concern or even genuine interest puts the emphasis on our attention. Our attention. If our attention is on something worthwhile there's no problem. But this can make understanding Philippians 4 verse 6 more difficult, because not only are the words anxiety and worry almost always negative in English, they also have a very different emphasis than Paul is intending. Anxiety and worry are heavily slanted in the direction of negative emotions, of how we feel rather than where our attention is focused. What we're thinking about, what we choose to occupy our minds with, is far more important to Paul, in this moment at least, in Philippians, than whether you feel nervous or worried or anxious. As a result, we automatically hear Paul's command, do not be anxious about anything as if he's somehow ordering us not to feel bad. Which is kind of silly. Even so, sometimes we find such a thought comforting. And it can help us to try and pull ourselves out of the dumps when we're feeling sorry for ourselves. But it can just as easily be frustrating, since we have very little direct control over our feelings. If we think that God, through Paul, is telling us that we're not supposed to feel anxious, our feelings, which we can't control, are going to produce guilt and thus make us feel even worse. Now, there's no secret that there is an epidemic of anxiety in the world right now. That is, many people, and especially young women, feel a lot of stress and uncertainty about the world, about the future. And the world's current strategy is to attempt to treat this anxiety with medications or with meditation techniques like mindfulness. Yoga, for instance, is just exploding, and especially among young women, because it gives them coping strategies that do work, at least In the short term. But the fact is that there are all kinds of good reasons in our world to be anxious, even to be afraid. Now, anxiety, of course, may be presenting something, some kind of mental illness that is underlying, but primarily anxiety is a symptom not the disease. The Bible regularly tells us that we should fear God, for instance. Jesus himself is the one who probably says it the most. Just before Jesus tells his disciples not to worry about what to say, when they're summoned before the courts, he tells them this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do more. Do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, those who do truly fear God will not fear anyone or anything but God. But those who do not fear God will be full of the fear of man alongside all kinds of other fears. Anxiety is a symptom, not the disease. The vicious cycle in our world goes like this. The world turns farther and farther away from God. And then, as the Bible predicts, everyone's anxiety increases. Now, if you're rich, you can use a variety of means to try and deal with your anxiety. But these means often have some kind of seedy underbelly, whether you see it or not, which increases the uncertainty and anxiety for the rest of the world, who have less access to the coping strategies of the wealthy. The resulting resentment means that anxiety continues to multiply everywhere. The symptom is treated rather than the disease. And both the symptoms and the disease just keep getting worse. This is an old, old story repeated countless times in history. The Philippian church was caught in just such a downward spiral, in an empire at the very pinnacle of its wealth and power, but which was at the same time constantly obsessed that they were going to lose them constantly worried about losing their power and prestige and wealth, that their thumb was going to slip. And so this is what makes Paul's use of the phrase in verse 7, the peace of God, so intriguing to me. The peace of God. It's a distinctive phrase, since it's nearly unique in the rest of the New Testament. Of course, we have the God of peace. That comes all the time. But the peace of God, that is rare. Now, I say it's nearly unique because there is one other phrase that's almost identical to it in Colossians 3.15. There, Paul instructs the church to let the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since, as members of one body, you were called to peace. And of course, here at the end of Philippians 4, verse 7, we read the promise that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. But while this phrase is uncommon in the New Testament, it's not so uncommon in other sources, since it would be the way to refer to a peace treaty and especially to what we know in Latin as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. It was also sometimes known as the Peace of Augustus, since Caesar Augustus was the ruler who forged this peace nearly 100 years earlier. Now, of course, the Peace of Rome was certainly not real peace. It was only sustained because of the Roman legions that enforced it, not to mention the cold, ruthless suppression of revolts, as well as the odd assassination and coerced suicide. This so-called peace was the result of horrific conquests, bloody civil wars, and plenty of backstabbing, literally. About the time that Paul was writing to the Philippians, the Roman philosopher Seneca was cynically looking back on Augustus' concoction known as the Peace of Rome with a healthy dose of skepticism. I'm reluctant to call mercy, he said, what was really the exhaustion of cruelty. And even though the Pax Romana was a time of relative global prosperity and stability, still an ongoing campaign of propaganda had to be maintained in order to promote the virtues of this peace. And this was because the bloodlust of the Romans was not unique to them. In fact, the violence of Rome that now so horrifies us after 2,000 years of acculturation to biblical categories and standards has been typical of most societies throughout history. For most ancient peoples, a lasting peace was not seen as desirable, it was not something at the very least that was thought to be natural. Pagan people who worship many gods generally believe that times of peace and times of war are determined by the gods of war and the gods of peace. As such, war and peace are largely out of any mortal's control. And war and peace are cyclical in such a conception. For them, peace does not have a separate existence from war. can't have one without the other. For Paul, however, someone who knew that there is only one God who rules the universe, there is a true peace that is one of the defining characteristics of God himself, a lasting peace that is very much to be desired, a shalom which amounts to much more than the absence of conflict. So when he writes to the mostly Gentile churches in Philippi and in Colossae, he appropriates the familiar terminology and the trappings of the peace of Rome, using terms like rule and borrowing the image of a military unit patrolling the heart, patrolling the mind but the substance of the peace that Paul had in his mind was entirely different. As he said, leading up to the passage we're studying, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, not in Rome. All our perspectives, all our priorities are to reflect that citizenship. So as we said before, at the end of verse 5, Paul turns his mind heavenward to Jesus. The Lord is near. And his entire pace and his tone shift. Jesus himself is the one in whom we are to stand firm. Jesus himself is the one in whom we are to have the same mind. Jesus himself is the one in whom we are to rejoice. Jesus himself is the one in whose footsteps we are to walk. And Jesus himself is the one to whom we are to give our undivided attention. To whom we are to bring all our problems and make all our requests. And that's what Paul is talking about in verses 6 and 7. He's not telling us to try and suppress our negative emotions. He's not telling us that we shouldn't feel the stresses of our existence. He's telling us not to be dominated and distracted by them. He's saying that we ought to focus our attention on Jesus. We ought to delight in Jesus. We ought to present to Jesus everything that is troubling us. And we ought to remember with thanks all that he has done for us. We ought to remember that prayer is a privilege that we have and only we have. Only in him. We ought to present our requests to God with expectation, expecting his shalom to patrol our hearts, where our emotions come from and where our will resides, expecting his shalom to elevate our minds, the place of our reason and our doubts and our concerns, and to transcend them with divine logic and infuse them with divine beauty. Which brings us to the famous list of excellent things that we're supposed to ponder in verse 8, and then to the injunction to act in verse 9, to put into practice what we have learned and received and heard and seen. Now, it may disappoint you or it may cheer you that we're not going to spend any time with those verses this morning, but I'm only going to underline that these commands to ponder what is excellent, to put into practice what you know, these are the final part of the strategy to stand firm in the Lord by being of the same mind in the Lord. So maybe we'll look at those verses on some other Sunday. But as we close, I want to once again consider that command at the beginning of verse six and consider how that command relates to the peace of God and the God of peace, how it relates to the question we were asking at the beginning of our time together, of all the good things that I want, what do I absolutely need to keep in my life? And as we do that, we need to remember that do not be anxious about anything does not mean that you have to reduce the amount of stress in your life. We have to remember that it does not mean that we need to cut ourselves off from the source of our worries. Whether that's the responsibilities that you feel are too much for you. Or a relationship that's in trouble. Or a personal conviction that's nagging at you. Do not be anxious means do not be overwhelmed by your cares. It means to pay attention to your very real anxieties. But only do that to use them to direct your attention towards the Lord who is at hand. To Jesus, whose hands will Carry them for you. On whom we are to cast all our cares, rather than to keep letting them roll around in our heads. It also means weighing our cares to consider whether they are truly things that are worth being preoccupied about in the first place remember that the things that Jesus considers essential are different from the things that we do. That things like food and clothing and shelter and security, he says, are not worthy of occupying the lion's share of our time and attention. That becoming consumed with the good can put us at risk of missing out on the best. And that is sitting at the feet of Jesus. We need to remember that falling in alongside with the cares and distractions of this world will make it impossible for us to grow. And remember again that feeling bad is not necessarily a bad thing. Bad feelings may be entirely rational and appropriate. Bad feelings can be the symptoms of a more fundamental problem. If the fact that the Lord is near makes you feel afraid, terrified even, maybe there's a good reason for that. Maybe you need to spend time in sober reflection. In serious repentance. Maybe it's time to cry out to Jesus to take away your sin. To remove your love for the world and the things of this world. Maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you're not sure if you've ever truly trusted him. Maybe the prospect of Jesus standing there near at hand is not scary, but detestable to you, or at least unwelcome. But something in you tells you that that revulsion is is not rational. You know that you don't have any good reason to feel loathing or indifference when you think about Jesus. Bring all of these feelings to him. In prayer, with thanksgiving, trusting him to show you himself as he truly is. To show you yourself as you truly are. Trusting him to save you. So that you can know him for all eternity. Or maybe you just have reasonable fears about the state of the world that we're living in. Or about the people in your life that you care dearly about. You may not be able to do anything about the world, and you may not be able to do anything about the choices your loved ones are making. But you can pray. And you can do something about your fears and your preoccupations. If you're feeling anxiety and despair, consider them to be the prods of the Holy Spirit leading you to greater reliance on Jesus. Bring these reasonable fears to him. There are things in the world that are scary, And anxiety-inducing. But they don't need to dominate your heart. They don't need to have dominion over your mind. The answer is still to acknowledge those things. Acknowledge that they exist. Acknowledge that they're things to ponder and think about. And exist in the world, but use them as spurs to bring you to the Lord who is near, who longs for you to bring these things to him. To take them off of your back and carry them for you. And as I wish George was here this morning because he keeps telling me, when you give your burdens to Jesus, don't pick them back up again. (laughs) because that's what we tend to do. On the other hand, if what you're feeling is a sense of being exhausted and overwhelmed because of your concern for the well-being of God's church, if your keen desire to help your brothers and sisters in Christ is bringing you to the end of your rope, Paul's own testimony, is that you may actually be on the right track. God may be calling you to persevere, not to take a break. To learn to trust with ever more abandon in God's unbounded reserve of strength, his limitless wisdom, his matchless shalom. As we heard Paul say in 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 11 and going on to chapter 12, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep i've often known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food i've been cold and naked besides everything else i face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches who is weak and i do not feel weak who is led into sin and i do not inwardly burn He goes on in verse 12, chapter 12. "To keep me from being conceited, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh: a messenger of Satan to torment me." This is Paul, the guy who I wrote, "Do not be anxious for anything." I have known hunger oh sorry, to torment me three times. I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Whose weakness? Not Jesus' weakness. He goes on, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I love insults. I can't wait to face hardship, to meet persecutions, to embrace difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Or maybe there's a situation in your life that seems just impossible to you. A person at home or or in your larger family, someone at, at school or at work or at church, you just, you can't see the way through. The dimensions of the relationship all seem fixed in place. The tensions are ongoing and never-ending. No one's wrong, exactly. You understand and accept their positions and the realities that shaped them. But you have your own positions, your own realities, and they're also not going to change. Perhaps you are of the same mind. You are committed to contending as one for the faith of the gospel. And out of love and in faith, you have committed that you will not abandon them, that you, will never, that you are never going to turn your back on them. But still, this situation keeps filling you with such sadness, with inconsolable grief. You don't know how you'll keep going like this for the next month, the next year, for the rest of your life, maybe. What then? Well, this sounds quite familiar to Paul. Continue to stand firm in the Lord. Continue to be of the same mind with this person. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your great heartedness always be on display. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Ponder the excellencies of Christ. Put into practice what you've learned and received and heard and seen in the Christian leaders you trust. The God of Shalom will be with you. That's the promise. And the shalom of God will guard your heart. The shalom of God will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. What is this shalom? Well, it takes a lifetime to discover it, which would make this sermon very long. But it takes intractable situations, such as the ones that I'm describing, that we all live in, to work it out. Shalom is the fundamental nature of God in perfect relationship with Himself. Shalom is the blessing of God overflowing in creation. Shalom is nothing less than the whole will of God expressed and worked out through souls united in Jesus. Shalom is his personal presence. Shalom is his personal care. Shalom is what we experience as our weakness in his strength. Let's pray together. Lord God, may the words of a weak and feeble man be empowered by your Spirit. May you give strength to the weary. May you instill fear into the wicked. May you bring your comfort to those who feel anxious. May you direct our thoughts and our minds and our hearts on yourself, that we may find there your peace because you are the God of peace. And it is in the name of the God of peace that I ask all these things. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. We hope you'll stay, if you can, for lunch, and uh, please come back next Wednesday, or next, we'll come back on Wednesday as well for, um, for our uh, prayer meeting and uh, come back next Sunday morning for our Welcome Back Sunday. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for bringing these people here. May you bless them with more of yourself, with your presence, and with your peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.